0: Well, church, it is, uh, it is time to get into our scripture reading and teaching time, so we're moving into a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so we're really excited for that. I uh, hope you are as well. And so uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first uh, book of the New Testament, uh, and we'll be starting in Matthew 5 verse 1. Uh, we've got some people joining us by a video who are going to do our scripture readings, and so we'll send it over to them uh, now. Let's roll the video, Sarah. The reading is from Matthew chapter 5. I'm reading from Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is what he taught them. God blesses those who realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. And God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you, and persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you, because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much to our readers. Uh, reminder, everyone, that we're, we're inviting everyone to send in scripture reading videos. Um, again, we, we want to keep seeing each other's faces so that 's a good way for us to stay connected, and also, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, we really want to get uh, this piece of scripture deep down into our bones as a church and so um, by having you know a wide swath of our congregation um, reading these scriptures that 's kind of symbolically a way that we as a church can can own this uh, scripture and say this we 're taking hold of this together, and so we would love for everyone to Um, to send in a scripture video of yourself reading either all of Matthew 5 or all of Matthew 6 or all of Matthew 7. Uh, We sent out instructions this past week. We'll send them out again tomorrow. Um, And so I would encourage you to do that. Um, And and yeah, Uh, it was our intention to get to the Sermon on the Mount next spring. That's kind of what we had sketched out, but uh, as with many of... uh, People's plans right now—that's you know—that's changing, uh, and and the reason why is that here we are in in the midst of uh, a major disruption uh, of life, and and you know going forward when we return to to normal, it's probably going to be a new normal, and maybe maybe we want like we want it to be a new normal. Actually, maybe we don't want to return to exactly the same way of way of being in the world that we uh, inhabited before. Um, but but that makes it kind of a moment where we're together kind of reimagining what it's going to look like for us to follow Jesus uh, going forward. It's kind of a back-to-basics moment for us as followers of Jesus. And so when you talk about back-to-basics for followers of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that. It's kind of the spot in Scripture that's, you know, it's kind of Jesus' greatest hits, like all of Jesus's. Um, most famous teachings are here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we thought this would be a good time as we're, you know, a little bit disrupted and a little bit rebuilding. We thought this might be a good time uh, for us to just spend, spend probably a few months living in uh, these words from the teaching of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go. Uh, we had our re- wonderful readers uh, reading verses 1 to 12, uh, through to the end of the first section, which is called the Beatitudes, and we're going to dig into all of that in the coming weeks. Um, but today, we're really just going to look at verse one and the and the first part of verse two, um, which are they're not the teaching; they're the setup for the teaching, actually. And what I want us to see is that Jesus, before he even starts speaking, he's he's speaking through his actions. Uh, Jesus is as Jesus. Uh, sets up for this teaching, we see him um, symbolically doing a couple of things and he's going to symbolically embody two identities and those two identities are going to shape how we read and understand and respond to the Sermon on the Mount. I'll say that again. Jesus is going to embody, symbolically embody two identities and those two identities are going to Shape how we read and understand, and embody or and respond to uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount. So let me show what I show you what I mean. Uh, verse one says, "One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them." Uh, now remember, uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again that. the the gospel writers always had more material than what they included, right? Matthew, in this case, uh, Matthew traveled around with Jesus for like three years. He would have had a ton of material. What he included, he probably included for a reason. When he includes things, it's probably because it's meaningful. And so we actually see, even in the little details leading up to the Sermon on the Mount here, a couple of meaningful details. Okay, so I'll show you what I mean. Uh... It says that Jesus, uh, we see Jesus sit down, right? Jesus goes up the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples gathered around him. And what does he do? He begins to teach them. He sits down with his disciples gathered around him, and he begins to teach them. In doing that, Jesus is is clearly signaling something. Uh, Jesus is clearly embodying the role of a rabbi. Uh, a rabbi was, was a thing that existed before Jesus came around, and, and it did not end with Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a Jewish scholar, sage, and uh, a teacher who would travel around with a, an entourage of, of disciples who were kind of the apprentices of that rabbi, and, and the rabbi would frequently uh, stop and sit down with the disciples gathered around and would teach. That's that's standard rabbi practice, uh, and so Jesus is stepping into that tradition here. That's the easy one, okay? Uh, so one identity is a rabbi. There's another thing going on here because what we also see is that crowds gather, crowds of Jewish people, uh, the descendants of Israel, crowds gather around Jesus, and Jesus goes up on the mountainside. Now, if you're, Matthew's, if you're one of Matthew's original readers, uh, you know what's going to happen here. If you're a first-century Jew like Matthew's original readers, uh, by this point in his book, you've already clued in to what's happening here when the crowds gather and Jesus goes up on the mountainside. Because Matthew has been laying a trail of breadcrumbs uh, for you through, through his uh, book already. And, and for Matthew's initial readers, uh, they're starting to see what Matthew is doing. Uh, so Matthew introduces Jesus and he includes a particular set of details when he tells the story of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story. He includes very different details from what Luke includes in Luke's account of the Christmas story. And so Matthew... Includes the the detail about Jesus escaping from King Herod. Okay, uh, he escapes a narrowly escapes uh, an infanticide. Okay, a wiping out of a bunch of children by an insecure ruler. Okay, it's, we tend not to like to talk about that at Christmas time. It's brutal, and and he includes the detail about Jesus escaping uh, to Egypt, escaping from Israel to Egypt and then being called out of Egypt and coming back to Israel. Then we skip ahead uh, over a few decades, and uh, we get to Jesus' adult life, and one of the first things we see in Jesus' adult life is that Jesus is led by God out into the desert, and he wanders there for 40 days. So if you're a first-century Jew and you're intimately familiar with the ancient stories of Israel, by this point in Matthew's Gospel, you definitely know what's going on. If you're a 21st century Christian who uh, you know, maybe has studied a little bit of Old Testament, you also might be starting to clue in as well that Matthew is, is editing his Gospel to present Jesus as a new Moses. Okay, all the plot points I just mentioned uh, are are copies; they're they uh, reenactments of plot points from the story of the prophet Moses in uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Moses was kind of the founding leader for the nation of Israel; this this founding kind of ruler prophet. He was kind of their George Washington, if if you want to think about it that way, you know. And um, and Matthew is coming out here and pretty strongly signaling Jesus is a new Moses. Now, perhaps Moses' greatest legacy was that he brought, uh, he brought the law, which in Hebrew was called the Torah. Okay? Uh, Judaism was very much a religion that was based on uh, obeying every word of the Torah. They loved the Torah. Uh, and it was Moses who brought the Torah uh, to the people of Israel. And how did he bring the Torah? Well, he went up, Exodus tells us, he went up on a mountain, met with God, and then he brought God's commandments to the crowd of Israelites that were gathered around. He went up the mountain, and then he brought God's commandments to Israel the crowd of israelites that were gathered around now by by Matthew chapter 5 like i said uh, Matthew's first readers are already they're already seeing this Moses thing going on they're they're looking at Jesus through Moses' lenses and and that means that they're expecting certain things to happen they're they're going okay what things from Moses' life are going to play out in the Jesus story and so, uh, and so they're expecting to see Jesus do certain Moses things. And so, when Jesus uh, climbs up the mountain with a crowd of Israelites gathered around him, I believe that's that's a huge moment. Like that's a huge payoff moment uh, for Matthew's initial Jewish readers. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like the moment uh, where uh, in the last battle of the last movie. Captain America finally says, Avengers, assemble. Uh, spoiler alert. But it's this huge moment of payoff where people have been expecting this thing to happen, and he does it, and they go, oh, man, he, he actually did it. That's how Matthew's readers would have, would have read this when it says Jesus went up on the mountain. They say, oh, Jesus is going to be a, a law bringer, a Torah bringer. And then look what Jesus says early on in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in 517. He says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses, the Torah, uh, or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Or you might say, I I came to, your Bible might say, "Uh, I came to fulfill them. In other words, uh, and this will be a major theme, Jesus is Moses 2.0 and he's bringing Torah 2.0. Like he's picking up what Moses was doing with the Torah and he's bringing it to completion in some way. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's yet another leader who, bring, who on a mountain brings the commandments of God. By the way, if, you're, if you want to check out the Moses theme uh, in Matthew couple other things to look for. Uh, Matthew is arranged around five discourses, five long speeches of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount is the first one. The five, uh, that mirrors the five books of the Torah. And then another thing to watch for is that Matthew is very careful about how he presents the story. He strategically includes uh, many of the plot points happening on mountains or hills. Again, that's a, a nod to Moses. So check that out if you're interested. So here we are uh, in verses 1 and 2 of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is symbolically embodying two identities, a rabbi and a new Moses. And those two identities shape how we read and understand and respond to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Let me explain that. Let's talk about this rabbi piece. I want to argue if, that if Jesus is in rabbi mode here, and he is, and if the Christian life is described as being a disciple of Jesus, and it is, then that means that our fundamental posture toward the Sermon on the Mount is to try and live out these teachings, to try and follow these teachings. Okay, a rabbi was a thing before Jesus came along, and a disciple was a thing before Jesus came along. Um... And a disciple was someone who tried to live the teaching and live out the example of the rabbi. So Jesus' last words were, go and make disciples, which means that as the church grows, as people become uh, become Christians, that what they're actually being called into is a rabbi-disciple relationship. And if that's true, then, then we as disciples are called to live out the sermon on the Mount seems seems pretty obvious, and it's easy to talk about. But when you dig in, it's it's actually uh, pretty challenging. We're gonna find that the Sermon on the Mount seems to set a really high bar in a lot of things. We'll talk about that throughout this series. Um, you know, Jesus is going to say that anger is as bad as murder. Jesus is going to say that lust is as bad as adultery. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And, And things like that have got to make you stop and say, wait, is that really the expectation? Like that's pretty intense. And so because of pieces like that, there have been lots of Christians throughout the years who wonder if Jesus actually meant for us to follow these teachings or maybe Jesus is trying to do something else uh, something else with these teachings maybe he's trying to expose our moral bankruptcy or or show us how high the bar truly is and show us that we need grace and you know it, they find kind of ways to wriggle out a little bit from uh, from the from what Jesus teaches here and if that were the right interpretation then fine don't don't obey the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but I think you've got an uphill battle in terms of saying, uh, saying that we're not supposed to live out these teachings uh, because here's Jesus in rabbi mode teaching disciples, and, and look what he says at the end. This is the, the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who, uh, who builds a house on a solid Rock. He literally sums up this, uh, this sermon by saying anyone would be better off if they would actually build their lives on this teaching. This is how you build a solid life, says Jesus. And that's why we sang Build My Life earlier. So uh, because of all this, we Anabaptists, uh, that's, our, that's our theological tradition going back about 500 years, um, we have traditionally read the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' actual teachings for how disciples are to actually live. Um, We Anabaptists have traditionally read the Bible with the Jesus stories at the center, and in many cases, we've actually read it with the Sermon on the Mount as kind of the center of the center. Like This is really important stuff for us uh, in our tradition. And we try and follow these teachings. And so you'll see the, the early Anabaptists, if you go back, one of their distinguishing markers was that they, they wouldn't swear oaths, uh, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't swear oaths. Like, you, sh- you should have the integrity to just say yes or no. And you know, my followers shouldn't need to swear oaths. And so that became a marker for the early Anabaptists. Same thing with our, one of our um, most famous... Uh, Practices, which is our our peace position. We hold a a position of of love and non resistance. And, uh, you know, we saw that's because of the Sermon on the Mount. We saw in today's reading uh, where Jesus teaches God blesses those who work for peace. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we've held a peace position for a long time in the Anabaptist movement. That's because of the way we, we read the Sermon on the Mount. So in our tradition, we don't try to wriggle out of these teachings. We definitely need to interpret them properly. We definitely need to contextualize them and, uh, and exercise wisdom as we, as we apply them. We don't take them all literally. Okay? Jesus, is go- Jesus speaks in hyperbole sometimes. That's part of it. That's a thing that ancient Semitic speeches did sometimes. Right? Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Okay, we, obeying, obeying that doesn't mean we actually cut off our hands. Uh, he's speaking in hyperbole. So we interpret it properly, uh, but, but our fundamental impulse is not to wriggle out of obeying the Sermon on the Mount, but rather to try and embody this way of living, to try and let this te- teaching shape the way that we live. We have a deep conviction that the Christian life is not merely believing the right things or praying the right prayers or aligning with the right group, whatever. It's actually a life-transforming everyday reality. So, Jesus is a rabbi, which means we as his disciples are to actually try and embody these teachings. And then let's talk about this piece of Jesus as the new Moses. Uh, Like I said... Uh, Judaism, specifically first century Judaism, um, was they loved the law, they loved the Torah, and it was a religion that was all about following God's laws. For them, following the letter of the law was spiritual maturity, period. Who are the people that God is most impressed with? Who are the people who are closest to God? Who are the people who are most righteous? Is those who have followed the letter of the Torah. Now that raises a question. Uh, is that the best we can do? Is that, is that the gold standard of what God desires for our lives? Is the true measure of one's closeness to God uh, rote, rigid, slavish rule-following? And it's interesting, in the Bible, uh, especially in the Old Testament, as we lead up to Jesus, uh, you can kind of trace two threads. You can trace two threads with two different answers to that question. Again, the question of, is is rule following the best that we can do? Um, So there's this one thread that dominates much of the Old Testament, and and we could call that thread uh, religion. And, And that thread would say that, yes, the best... The best way to follow God is to obey the commandments. Obey the commandments. Obey the commandments. And that's, that's the thread that, uh, that, um, that many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day follow, the thread of religion. But there's this other thing that's going on under the surface, a second thread that you can trace that's, that is um, imagining something beyond merely following rules. You can actually even begin to see it uh, at the end of Deuteronomy. You see right at the end of Moses' life, Moses, the the law bringer, um, he he restates the law and and the whole covenant uh, with God back to the Israelites in in kind of his farewell speeches. And you can see, if you you read it, um, you can see, Moses almost is like, uh, these guys aren't going to be able to follow this. This isn't really going to work. Like Moses kind of has his doubts about the people um, staying close to God just through following the rules and then as we go through the Old Testament, you see things like this. You see uh, the prophet Ezekiel Ezekiel um, who has God saying uh, to Israel, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put." a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Or other translations say, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, In the prophets, we start to see hints that God wants to do something uh, deeper, something at a heart level, uh, and that that might be what God desires for His people in terms of following Him. You can see also in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, that says, "But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days," says the Lord. "I will put my instructions, literally my laws, my Torah, deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." Again, he's he's saying, "I'm not looking for them to just modify their external behavior. I want I want the spirit of um I want the spirit of my laws, the the love and the mercy." And the justice that are, that are in my laws, I want that to be deep down on their hearts. It's like, God something, it's like God wants something for them beyond just rote rule following. And then we get to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of, of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's that's a bombshell in those days because the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they like they played, uh, they scored the most religion points. They were the top performers in the religion game, and so to say, uh, I want you to be more religious than the most religious. That's like that's insurmountable. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying something entirely different. He's saying, uh, I, want, I want something deeper. I want you to actually go beyond modifying your external behavior. I want you to go beyond religion into heart transformation. Okay, I, th- I thought about calling this series Beyond Religion. Uh, then I found out that that's a, the title of a book by the Dalai Lama. I figured I would get too many emails. Jesus, Jesus' desire, what he's trying to call his disciples to here, is something beyond religion. He's calling them beyond external rule falling toward actual heart transformation. It's something better than the righteousness of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. That's what it means that Jesus is uh, a new Moses. Moses 2.0 is kind of bringing Torah 2.0. He's bringing, he's bringing commandments of God. He's bringing a law, a, an instruction, a teaching that is about heart transformation. He's a, he's a new Moses and a better Moses with a new and better uh, form of Torah. So let me uh, give us a couple of reflection questions as we, as we wrap up here. Okay, number one, I uh, want to invite you this week to read Matthew 5-7. to 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Spend some time reading it and, and just ask yourself, which teachings are the most challenging or convicting? If our, if our role as disciples is to try and live out this teaching, if that's what, what being a disciple is, then, in, then just sort of use this uh, text as a mirror. Like let it hold up the mirror to you and say, where uh, am I following Jesus closely and in, in what places am I um, perhaps... Do I need to do some work? Okay? And, and don't need to act drastically right now. You know, wait until we get, get through it and, and we'll uh, work through how all the different texts apply. But just make a note of which ones press on your heart the most. Uh, and then, secondly, uh, where might you be using religion to cover a heart issue? Um, and so that's that's the whole thing that Jesus is pointing to as he's the new Moses. He's not trying to call us to religion. He's trying to call us to a transformed heart. We have this uh, this crazy capacity as human beings um, to just use the external to cover up a, an issue that's inside, right? And so that's why Jesus is going to say, uh, "Don't just don't stop it. Do not murder, but actually eradicate anger from your heart. Don't stop it. Do not." adultery, but ra- but rather um, eradicate lust from your heart. Where might you be using religion to cover a heart issue? By the way, uh, you don't have to be religious to use religion to cover a heart issue. That's something that we do uh, in the secular world as well. We have a term for it now; it's called virtue signaling, uh, where people use external signifiers to cover up the the actual um, their actual bankruptcy. their heart and um brian our youth pastor talked about virtue signaling in a in a sermon Um, i think it was in january 2020 so about 10 years ago Uh, so you can look that up let me pray for us as we as we wrap up jesus we thank you uh, that you've called us into a life of discipleship we thank you that you've called us uh, into a life of, of a transformed heart. And uh, as, we, as we move into our week, we pray that um, we, we want to partner with you. We want you to work deeply in us um, to, to get at some root issues, uh, to not just modify what's on the surface, but to look below the surface and to um, transform us from the inside out. Uh, We pray that you would be doing that work inside us. and, And as much as it depends on us, we also commit to that work, to doing that work of our interior life and our exterior life as we seek to follow you. In your name we pray, amen.